Today I'm talking with mental health activist, author, physician, psychotherapist, Dr. Terry Lynch. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Michal. Nice to talk to you. Same to you. I know emotional and mental health has been a great passion of yours for most of your life. Why did you go down this route? That's an interesting question. Um, a number of reasons. I think my own personal life would have had something to do with it. I, I would have experienced quite a lot of anxiety, unhappiness myself in my teenage years. My own childhood was a bit disrupted, really, and caused a fair bit of fair bit of fear and, and, and sorrow in me, I think. And it, it emerged in my teenage years, mostly. And I worked through it, and I went on to do medicine. And I, I, I qualified as a doctor, and I trained to be a GP. I qualified from UCC, and trained to be a general practitioner in the in the very excellent um, vocational training scheme in, in Cork University. Um, but And then I, I qualified as, and I worked as a GP and I really liked the work. I was a very enthusiastic doctor. But as I, as the years progressed and as I was dealing with real people, I began to see that there was a difference between what I had been trained in terms of mental health about and in people's experiences. And the more I began to listen to people and tune into people's experiences, the more concerned I became about the about the medical model, really, and the medical approach. It seemed more and more to me that the medical approach to emotional mental health was, in fact, trying to fit people into a model, into a particular way of interpreting people's experiences, rather than taking experiences more at face value and dealing with them there. And I became more and more concerned about that, and I I read widely and I thought widely about the whole thing and and I reached a point where I felt I can't continue in this system anymore because it it's not it's not good enough it's it's foundations are not solid and I just was faced with the question am I am I going to continue in, within a system that I feel is very limited in its understanding and its approach or am I going to try to expand and try to increase my understanding of emotional mental health and thereby perhaps work more effectively with people. I know recently you brought out a book in regards to depression, Terry, but what do you define depression as? Yeah, good question. Well, I think, you know, my first my first answer to that is that, that how, we, how we define depression is not good enough. Um, there is this idea out there that medica- that depression is fundamentally a brain disorder, a biological condition. It isn't. And that's, that's one of the reasons I wrote this particular book, to dispel the myth, uh, a very widely held myth, that there are chemical imbalances identified in depression. There are not. I'll come back to that later on. So what, what is this thing we call depression? What I've learned over the years is that you can, we can understand depression but not really in the medical terminology, in the medical language. Depression is fundamentally a combination of three to four main themes. The first theme is trauma or woundedness. The second theme is distress in its many forms. The third theme is defense mechanisms that we use. And the fourth theme is uh, choice making, the choices we make, which are affected by the previous three. And I've learned over the years that the people I have seen with a diagnosis of, of depression, that they, they have all, all of these characteristics, that there is always a degree of traumatization or woundedness. There is always a subsequent distress that follows that, that woundedness. 
then we people use a range of defense mechanisms to try to cope with the traumatization and the uh, distress that they've experienced. And some of the, for example, some of the main defense mechanisms that, that we use in such situations are some of the core themes of depression, such as withdrawal, shutdown, avoidance, um, and, and selfhood reduction. I, my last book was called Selfhood, and that's a core issue here, the reduction of our sense of self. And, you know, we reduce our sense of self when we feel that having a sense of self is too risky. So I, I think I have no personal doubt at this stage that the best way to approach what we call depression is to understand the what I, the emotional or, or psychological aspects that I've just set out to you. And I, I, I have no doubt that the current approach, which is more biologically dominated, you know, is not really helping us a whole lot. It's not helping us to understand this thing we call depression. What would you define as a doctor's role with a person with depression or a mental health issue, Terry? I suppose I'd have to go back a step or two beyond that, or before that, if that's okay with you. I, I think that our society, and we're not alone in this, I think every Western society, we've, and this is why I call the book Depression Delusion, you know, the myth of the brain chemical imbalance, because I feel that as a society, we've become quite deluded. And, as a, and the same is true in, in America and Britain. We've become quite deluded. And what I mean by that is we've become very misinformed about this thing called depression. And I think we need a major societal review of what we call depression. Now, I certainly, you know, the current situation is that doctors are seen as the experts in mental health, GPs, psychiatrists, particularly psychiatrists. I think that, and many GPs will admit this privately, that they, they don't have a great grounding in mental, mental health. So I, 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 I certainly question the current position whereby doctors are seen as the experts. I don't believe they are. I, I think that unless depression is seen for what it is, as I said, which is fundamentally trauma and woundedness, distress in its many forms, the defense mechanisms we use, I think any system or any person, any health professional who doesn't see it from that perspective is, is misinterpreting it. Because, as I said, like there are no chemical imbalances. There are it's no human being has ever been shown to have a brain chemical imbalance in depression. So that is highly theoretical. And 50 years of research have failed to establish this. So I think I'm very concerned about the current situation where the where doctors are seen as the main experts, because I don't believe they are. Um, I think now there's another aligned question to that. And that is, you know, does that mean medication has no role? I'm not saying that at all. Medication most certainly has a role. Uh, some people, you know, I'm not going to deny anybody's experiences. And some people will say that medication has helped them considerably or greatly. And I'm not going to come along and say that can't be true. You know, clearly it is true. But I think we need to get away from the idea that it's correcting medications, correcting chemical imbalances, because you can't rightfully say, nobody can rightfully say that a substance is correcting a chemical, chemical imbalance if that imbalance hasn't actually been identified to exist in the first place. But medication can help because it numbs pain. I mean, antidepressants, for in some people, they help to numb the pain and help people function. That has to have a place. But I am concerned that that has become the main response in our society to depression. And it's a little bit like papering over cracks. Uh, that I'm not trying to overstate it by that, but it, we, need, we need as a society to reevaluate how we see trauma and hurt uh, we're, we are underplaying that hugely in our society.
You speak about in your book about this myth of the chemical imbalance. Can you explain to me about this? Yeah. About in the in the mid sixties, some some researchers postulated that uh, chemical imbalances are probably the cause of depression, or are probably present in depression because it was found that some substances, such as antidepressants, um, interfered with uh, the chemical imbalances function in the brain. So that's where the theory arose. It was because the medications seemed to have an effect on the chem chemicals that doctors and researchers concluded that, well, maybe the problem then is an abnormality in the chemical function in the brain. But, and then that, that became a very attractive idea. Uh, it was a very attractive idea to the drug companies, obviously, because they could then promote that as so they could use that notion to promote their drugs. And my God, did they do that? I mean, 20, 25 years ago, virtually all, if not, well, virtually all, and probably all of the drug companies who manufactured antidepressants were saying as a fact that depression was a chemical imbalance and that antidepressants corrected that chemical imbalance. So it was a very simplified idea. It was a catchy idea. It caught on. Doctors loved it as well because it, psychiatrists and GPs really took to the idea because it was, wow, now we can really do something. And that <clears throat> that idea then really helps the promotion of antidepressants. And it also helped the, the amount of diagnosis of depression. I mean, the rate of diagnosis of depression has gone up by a thousandfold. That's a thousandfold in about 50 years. No other medical condition has, has gone through that type of exponential growth. And a huge part of that, I think, is that doctors became really enthusiastic about the treatments and therefore they became really enthusiastic about the about the idea so this idea then went from being a theory to a publicly accepted fact and was commonly stated as a fact and in the book i give many many examples of leading psychiatrists over the past 30 40 years including the last few years and gps too stating as a fact in books in the media and i give the references that serotonin deficiency and brain chemical deficiencies are a fact in depression. And I know they're not. So, and I'm not the only one who's been saying this. So I, I do not, I will not accept misinformation on such a grand scale. And what's happened, and this is part of what I wrote, written in the book as well, because psychiatrists and GPs who are very trusted in society, because they have been preaching this for 40, 50 years, other other important aspects of life have accepted this as truth. So many psychologists believe that there are chemical imbalances, and, and I've quoted many in, in the book. Many psychotherapists and counselors do also. Many mental health organizations promote the idea of chemical imbalances, and I've mentioned them, listed them. Uh, many media figures, and I've listed several Irish media figures and, and figures from abroad who have in public stated that depression is a chemical imbalance. Now, I'm not for one second blaming people in the media who, who are only taking what they have heard as truth. However, they too are contributing to the spreading of the delusion, of the myth. So that is, that is my concern, that this idea, which is a, a falsehood, has become possibly the most commonly accepted fact about depression. And that's not right. I'm not okay with that. And this brain chemical imbalance theory, is there a test that can be done? No, there is no test that can be done. No person in this world has ever had a brain serotonin test carried out. 
not only that, but it has never even been established what the normal brain serotonin should be. It has never been established what the normal range of serotonin is. So it's a complete myth. It's a complete piece of theory that has no scientific basis. And in fact, a, a recent, uh, a recent um, phenomenon, a recent development has been that drug companies, and this is something the public haven't heard much of, but many drug companies are actually backing out of psychiatric research, which is really very interesting because if there was promise of biological abnormality in depression, then you'd expect uh, the drug companies to be in there very enthusiastically researching because they, they want to make money from substances that work. But they're actually backing away from, from um, psychiatry, which is really a dramatic development. So there are no tests. It's all theory. And it's nonsensical, really, from a scientific perspective. It's nonsensical that a doctor, after five or ten minutes with a, with a person, could say to them, well, you have a chemical imbalance. It's just fantasy in the extreme. And it needs to stop immediately. And I would suggest to people who have been told by a doctor that they have a chemical imbalance, that they should ask that doctor for the evidence. Where's the evidence of my chemical imbalance, doctor? Now, the next question is, why, why would doctors say this? Why would doctors talk about chemical imbalances when there are none? Well, the most basic answer to that is that doctor, people expect doctors to know why they're prescribing the drug, and they want to know the logic. Why, why am I being prescribed this drug? So somebody who has diabetes will want to know why they're being prescribed insulin. So the doctor will say, well, your blood sugar is raised, so you need the insulin to correct that. And the person will accept that. And that's provable because that person can will be checking their blood sugars three or four times a day, and it will be very obvious uh, to that person. And in fact, they won't have had the diagnosis of diabetes unless their blood sugars have been have been abnormal. And this is another, th another, I have a chapter in the book about, you know, the often made comparison between depression and, and diabetes. Scientifically, there are, they're chalk and cheese. They're so different, those two. And they're used, the comparison is often used, I think, to lull the people into thinking that the, the, the depression, the approach to depression is far more scientific than it actually is. Why are we being brainwashed by this theory? You know, I've, I've come to the conclusion, having observed many, many organizations over the years and groups, that what we need to remember here is that because, because we're talking about doctors, doctors are such a trusted group of people that when they're amongst the most trusted profession in the world, so when doctors speak, they tend to be trusted. Uh, so when a doctor, and many, many doctors have said this in public, and I've named many of them in the book, when doctors tell people that depression is a chemical imbalance, well, people are going to are going to um, they're going to accept that. What I've learned over the years, though, is that while I'm not accusing doctors of this, because I think a lot of this happens subconsciously, but the people who most needed to convince the public that there were chemical imbalances are actually doctors and the drug companies, because by persuading the public that depression is a chemical imbalance, doctors became important, very important in the whole dynamic because chemical imbalances can be corrected with chemicals. That's the whole, the whole point. So the notion of chemical imbalances has made the, the, the doctors really important in this whole dynamic, far more important, in my opinion, than they should be based on their actual understanding. And also, of course, 
it has made the drug companies really, really important. And they are the two really important players in this. So I think the public has taken its lead from what it has heard from doctors uh, and drug companies. I mean, much easier for a doctor when somebody goes in feeling upset and distressed and depressed to be able to say to them, well, you have a chemical imbalance and here's the prescription. You know, that fits with the medical approach, which is very diagnostically oriented. But it, it's not the way we should be doing things. Now, another reason why this has this delusion has spread so much and has been accepted is that there has been acceptance of it by the public because it kind of suits the public too in a way. Our societies, unfortunately, underplay the importance of emotions and, and, and underplay, underplay hurt and trauma greatly. And this idea helps our societies to not look at our feelings deep in a more deep way, uh, our hurt, our distress. So our societies, much of our societies are quite happy to see uh, a supposedly logical reason for all this so that we don't have to look at ourselves and we don't have to look at our society and we don't have to look at how we live and we don't have to look so much at how, how easily people get hurt and we don't have to look at ourselves. What are your thoughts around medication then for depression? I think that medication has a place. I think that it, it, I think honesty is the key, you know, and I think nobody should be told that the medication corrects chemical imbalance. What they should be told is that the medication does help change how people feel. And one of the commonest feelings that people have when they take medication is numbness, that, that their pain is numbed somewhat. And to somebody who's in immense distress, that could be very welcome. And I think that's partly why, possibly mainly why, many people really find antidepressants helpful. However, fundamentally, as I said, we've got to look at what the core issue is. And since chemical imbalances are not the core issue, and medication has no impact on correcting an imbalance that it doesn't exist, then we need to be saying to ourselves as a society, if the core issue is trauma and hurt, and distress in its main for many forms, and the various defense mechanisms we create to minimize our hurt and our distress, then should we not be looking at those issues more? And medication doesn't look at those issues, it papers over them. Now, and quite often when people take medication for six, nine months, they find when they come off them that they're right back where they started. Now, more misinformation has been given about that over the past 50 years because people are frequently told by their doctors that the reason that their, their, their depression or distress comes back after six to nine months is that the illness is back and that that proves that they need long, lifetime, lifelong medication. As I said, there is no brain illness identified. What's actually going on is that the substance that was numbing the pain is now not being taken, so the person is back where they started in terms of their distress. Plus, Another thing that has happened in our society is that the uh, withdrawal effects of antidepressants has been greatly underplayed by the medical profession and by the drug companies. And again, you can see why, because, you know, it's not in their interest to 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 have people accept that or even know that withdrawal effects are relatively common with antidepressants. So, you know, antidepressants have a role to play. Like I prescribe medication, I prescribe antidepressants, but I prescribe them far less than most doctors do because I have a richer understanding, I think. And I work with the things I've talked to you about, the, the trauma, the distress, 
the defense mechanisms. So I, I work with them, and that's a much more fruitful way to work. But unfortunately, GPs don't have the time, and they don't have the training to do this, because it's little known out there that trauma is at the heart of all of this. Do you think there's a link between suicides and people trying to come off medication? That wouldn't be an area I would consider myself specialist in, really. um, Having said that, there's quite a lot of, you know, research has gone into that. You have people like David Healy, the the Irish psychologist, psychologist in Wales, who has is in absolutely no doubt that there's an association between suicide and drug withdrawal. And certainly I have worked with people who, going through the process of withdrawal, have gone through great emotional distress. So, you know, while I, I, I wouldn't emphatically say, you know, definitely, yes, I, I, would, I would say that it's a concern that we should look at. We have, we have, I feel as a society we've avoided that as well because it's unpalatable, the idea that, the substances we take could actually be causing death or causing great distress. You know, that's not something I think, I don't think the psychiatric profession has addressed that properly at all. Um, For too long, um, it's been said that, no, 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 they couldn't possibly cause that. Whereas actually, as I said, people like David Healy have actually gone right back to the original research of Prozac back in the 1980s, in which he has found evidence of suicidal thinking, uh, uh, in people when they were withdrawing. So, you know, all things considered, I would have to say it's a real concern. And um, and, and an, an added concern is the complete, almost complete lack of support that there is out there for people who choose or want to come off medication. Again, the medical profession have been very slow to respond with the level of support that people need to come, when they're coming off medication because of the difficulties involved. And I think that is really not good enough. I can see the reasons for it, but it's really not good enough. We need systematic support for people who want to come off medication. Terry, what are your thoughts, say, on the DSM-5 manual as a way to diagnose people with mental illness? Again, I, I would answer that. I would begin to answer that by saying that we need a really fundamental review of how we approach emotional and mental health and truth has got to become the number one theme truth because there's so much misinformation out there in terms of emotional mental mental health and the dsm is a very good example of it diagnostic Mm -hmm. and statistical manual of mental disorders the dsm is considered the most authoritative diagnostic book in the world in association with another um another similar manual called the the ICD, the International Classification of Diseases, but that that takes its lead from the DSM. What the public need to realize is that that manual is without science. There is no science in that manual, none. It is a consensus agreement amongst psychiatrists of the American Psychiatric Association. I recently compared it to the way the Pope was elected. It's not unlike that. Groups of psychiatrists gather in secret and they thrash out what they think should be uh, psychiatric diagnoses. And it's really a matter of opinion. There's no scientific evidence. There's no references in the DSM to tests or any confirmatory um, ways of diagnosing anything. And the public don't realize that. It's, It's like a sham, really. Now, I remember reading it in Beyond Prozac. I, I 
which was my first book published in 2011, I mentioned that in the DSM that uh, it lists 10 criteria for a diagnosis of depression, right? And if the person has five of them, then a diagnosis of depression is considered appropriate uh, by psychiatry. And in, in Beyond Prozac, I pose the question, why five? Why not three? Why not seven? Because it's random. There's, there's no scientific basis for that. And it was interesting then that in 2010, I came across a book written by an American psychiatrist, uh, Daniel Carlett. His book is called Unhinged, The Problem with Psychiatry, which is a very good title. But in that book, he asked that same question, you know, why, why five? Why not three? Why not seven? But he then arranged an interview with the psychiatrist, Robert Spitzer, who was the chair of the DSM-3 that in 1980 um, came to that conclusion about the about depression, that it should be five. And, and that has been how psychiatry in the world has interpreted depression, based on his and his group's decision, their consensus, that five equals a diagnosis of depression. So Carlet asked him, why five? Why did you decide on five? And he said, well, we, we, we asked clinicians and researchers what they thought, how many they thought there should be. And um, they, came, they basically came down on the figure of five. And Carlet asked them again, why five? Why not three? Why not seven? And this leading psychiatrist who, along with his group, are responsible for how the world interprets depression now, replied, well, six seemed too many and four just seemed too few. And that's the basis of the scientific, so-called scientific nature of depression as per the DSM. The public need to know this. What are your own thoughts on the current Mental Health Act, whereby they have the power to sign you as a person into hospital against your will? In my experience, I feel there are times when that seems to be necessary. I could look back and think of a number of times over the past 15, 20, 25 years, not many, not many, less than 10 certainly, where the person was, wasn't, I think, really in a place in themselves to make that call and th that it was necessary to make it for them. And I can think of a small number, as I say, a small number of situations where it has been life-saving. So I don't feel I could come out and say that nobody, sh that nobody should ever be admitted to hospital against their will. Having said that, I think that, you see, I think the situation goes back to how did it reach that point? And, you know, I think our society is so bereft of the types of supports that people need long, long, long before they reach that point. That in a way, of course, it's an important question. But if we had the proper supports, the proper responses at stage A, B, C, D, E, F, etc., then I don't think it would reach stage Z as frequently as it does. I think it's obviously an, an important issue, a big issue. I think that it, you know, it again, I, I can't say this with, with authority, but it may it may well be the case that it's overused. Um, but I couldn't say to you in all conscience 
that nobody should ever be admitted against their will because I have I do know of situations where it's been life saving and that the person was subsequently able to see that it was in their own interest. But I do think in terms of the Mental Health Act, you know, we must make them as person centred as possible and as respectful as possible. And that is happening. I mean, you have people like Pat Bracken who are very involved now in in creating such things. And, the, you know, that's very forward thinking to have a person like Pat very involved in. But I think we won't really solve that issue and that problem, I think, until we, as a society, address emotional and mental health in a far more inclusive way than we are. I think that that problem is a symptom of the problem of, of, of compulsory admission to hospital is a symptom of our deeper failure to properly address emotional and mental health in our societies. Do you think that medication raises major issues about informed consent to treatment, Terry? There are issues around informed consent with medication if people are misinformed about how those drugs work. Yes. So if people are told that that they have a brain chemical imbalance and that the drug will correct it and that that's why they're on the drug, then they're being misinformed, fundamentally misinformed. And how can somebody give informed consent when they're given that level of misinformation? So there are issues about informed consent with medication when there's misinformation about the medication and, and how it works or how it's thought to work. Yes, absolutely. Why do you think there is a stigma in relation to depression, Terry? I believe that the fundamental issue around stigma is that as a society, and as I said earlier, we share this with America, we share this with Britain, most Western societies have not grown up in terms of emotional maturity, in terms of understanding and accepting that we human beings can be emotionally fragile, that we can get hurt, we can get wounded. And children learn from a very young age, particularly boys, that it's not okay to be emotionally vulnerable. So they learn to hide it. And that's, that's where it all starts. And I think as a society, we're frightened of our emotions. We're scared of them. We don't want to know about them. We try to push them away. So people who are then experiencing a lot of emotional overwhelm, hurt, pain, they scare us in a way because they are, they are, they are mirrors to us of what we are trying to avoid in ourselves and what we're trying to avoid in society. So we, we shun them. We, like we do with any group that we, that, that kind of press our buttons in terms of trying to wake us up to certain things. So I think that's one of the, the main reasons for the for the stigma that that these are areas that we are scared of as that the majority of the public don't want to know about because we are scared of our own feelings we're scared of our own fears our own sorrow our own unexpressed and unhealed emotions and we don't want to know about them and therefore we don't want to know about someone who is you know really experiencing these to a great degree that's one aspect to it i think another aspect to the to the stigma though is the major confusion around these these diagnoses. Like, if you talk to someone about di diabetes, most people in the public out there would have a fair idea about diabetes. They've, you know, this, the science of diabetes is very clear. Um, and there's no stigma about that. Well, with depression, it's made out to be scientific. But 
because the dot the dots don't join and they really don't join the public can't get a handle on it scientifically so there's confusion about what depression actually is and then you've got all the other stuff the pain the hurt the sorrow the and you see this in the media sometimes you know the 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 stories that you you hear um frighten people and so because people don't understand what depression actually is you know we tend to stigmatize what we don't understand and we tend to be frightened of it we tend to try to push it away so i think i would say they're the two main reasons for the stigma the um our societal denial of of feelings and their impact on us and the fact that we we don't understand this thing that that is called depression so we're scared of it and we we're frightened of it and so we we push it away and if we push it away we push the people who are experiencing it away do you think this stigma is affecting people's rate of recovery absolutely i think a lot of things are affecting people's rate of recovery um that's one of them uh i suppose i i you see again i come back to what's really going on um i can think of people in the media for example who have spoken about about what they've been going through one one i remember hearing an interview by david corkery the irish rugby player and he was he was very impressive on the radio and he he was talking about his experiences you know and i suppose they were probably called depression but when you actually sit down to listen to the story you you realize that it was to do with change to do with loss to do with grief and he was holding a lot of stuff inside him and then he met with a person who had become a friend i think he was a form of therapist as well and he just literally blurted it all out he he cried he let it all out and he says that was the turning point for him and i think because there isn't a, a societal acceptance of our pain and hurt and sorrow people don't it's not really easy for people to find safe places to let it all out and to heal their unfinished emotional business and work their way through it and to begin to take the actions they need to take to get back on track so i think there are a lot of reasons why why recovery is lower than it should be i think that again the medical models contributing to this in my opinion because a lot of people are told that it's an illness a brain illness that they will have like diabetes for the rest of their life and if somebody is told that then their expectations of recovery uh will diminish enormously because they're now being told that what they have is a lifelong illness like diabetes and as i've said earlier the scientific basis of diabetes compared to depression could not be more different the two are scientifically totally unlike it's a it's a wrong comparison do you not think there is a a commercial interest involved in keeping this myth alive terry i absolutely think there is absolutely me hall i was saying that earlier that you know the the two groups who've most benefited from from this myth are the drug companies who have made hundreds of billions out of it and the medical profession and the medical profession may argue that how could they possibly have benefited but they have uh, the status of psychiatry has increased very considerably because it is seen as the expert group on depression gps also their status in terms of being able to treat depression has increased enormously um there's absolute there's good commercial interests but there are also professional interests there is identity interests um absolutely and now what what's happening now though is that 
at a subtle, silent level, even within the drug industry and psychiatry and general practice, they are beginning to realize that the game is kind of up, really, with the chemical imbalance idea. So they are saying it a little bit less, particularly in the public, because there are people like me coming on saying, hang on a second, there's no evidence for that. But in the in the offices of doctors, in the privacy of doctors' offices, GPs and psychiatrists, doctors are still faced with that question by patients. How does this drug work, doctor? And they have to provide some answer. And the answer, I believe, that is most commonly given, because it's the one people are most familiar with, is, well, it changes your brain chemistry. It, it, it corrects and normalizes brain chemistry. So it's the, it helps to maintain the system, really, as, as, as it currently is. But we need, to, we need to look at this system. I mean, there's very little evidence, for example, you know, there's a lot of talk about depression. It's not as if depression isn't being talked about. It has been talked about a lot. Suicide has been talked about a lot. But are we, is all this talk making much difference in terms of, of impact on suicide rates? I don't think so. There doesn't seem to be a decrease in suicide rates. So I think, you know, what people most need is permission to talk about this, permission to talk about how they feel. I personally would prefer people to talk about how they feel and what's going on for them than to talk just purely about depression. I would, pe I would prefer people to talk about how they felt overwhelmed and hurt and how they felt the need to withdraw and shut down and the distress and the hurt and the pain and the terror and the fear that they were experiencing. That helps to legitimize the actual experiences that then go on to be called depression. If the conversation is just about depression and, oh, well, he has depression and I had depression and, you know, this is depression, etc., well, then we're not getting to the core issues. Uh, and that's where we need to get to. And we need to normalize the core issues, that they're a normal part of human experience. And we all get overwhelmed at times, some of us more than others. And the more hurt we have been in our lives, the more wounded we have been emotionally and psychologically, then the more, more vulnerable we are to hurt. The current model tends to ask what is wrong with a person rather than asking what happened to a person. Yes. Like, why is this? It's a very good point. You see, the, the system, the dominating system, the, the pharmaceutical and medical system depends on the experiences of depression, for example, as being seen as an illness, right? And I remember coming across, like, one of the things that, that maintains delusions like the chemical imbalance and our wrong approach to depression is distortions in societal understanding of things. So if you look at the, de the, 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 the definition of depression and the how, easily, how easy it is to diagnose depression, it's very easy. The bar is very, very low. But if you take trauma then and you look up in the DSM or you look up on psychiatry websites what the definition of trauma is, you will find that in order to have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress, you have to have had something really serious happen, really, really serious, like a sexual assault, witnessed an accident, witnessed a killing, really top, top drawer stuff here. And I recently looked at an NHS, National Health Service Authority website on trauma, and it actually said, and I had to blink twice before and reread this, it actually said that events like divorce, failing exams and losing your job they're not actually usually traumatic. They're just merely simply upsetting. And I thought to myself, ask any 12-year-old, you know, was the divorce of their parents 
merely upsetting. So we've set the bar in terms of trauma very distortedly. We've made trauma very difficult to diagnose and we've made depression very easy to diagnose. So therefore, our society led by the mental profession, of course, doesn't ask, well, what happened to you? Because we, we've decided that trauma and hurt and what has happened to us aren't important. These are illnesses fundamentally, so let's immediately get into the illness. And if we were to ask what we should ask, which is exactly that, what has happened to you in your life? Then we are likely to, to realize that actually trauma and woundedness and distress, these are the heart of the matter, and they are the heart of the matter. But one consequence of that is that it will take us as a society away from the medical um, model into a trauma-based model. And that will diminish psychiatry's place in all of this because we will realize that trauma is actually a human reaction to, um, to woundedness and hurt and that that requires a different humane response. And I believe that's why we don't ask the question, what happened to you? Now, the, another reason that's an ally to that is, you know, when people come to me and they have a diagnosis of depression or bipolar, schizophrenia, or, or who don't have a diagnosis, I can very quickly get a sense of the hurt and the trauma and the defense mechanisms and the distress that they've experienced very quickly. And I can regularly identify stuff that has not been identified by any of the doctor they've seen. And part of the reason for that is doctors are not trained to pick it up because trauma is not seen as hugely important in terms of emotional mental health so it's it's not part of the training it's not enough of the training anyway it needs to be at the heart of the training but there's a resistance to that i believe within psychiatry because that will change the whole direction of our understanding of trauma and indeed of emotional and mental health and without getting too technical there's a, an excellent psychiatrist called Bessel van der, van der Kolk, K-O-L-K, and he's specialized in trauma all of his life. And he has tried to influence, tried to help the, tried to get the the, the um, lead psychiatrists of the DSMs. He has tried to get them to include more about trauma in the DSM, and they've refused. And, you know, that's the reason. The reason is that it will change how societies perceive emotional mental dis distress and it will be really challenging to the position of psychiatry if that happens and i'm afraid to say it but you know it seems to me that the reason that we ask what's what what, what you know what's wrong with you rather than what what happened to you is that that suits the model and that suits everybody who currently benefits from that model in one way or another what do you believe are the ethics and the human rights elements to all of this yeah, I think I think ethics and human rights come into this in so many different ways. I mean, I, I, one of my passions in all of this is the human right to life, the human right to a full life, the human right to the best life they can have. So if somebody is in their you know teens or 20s, diagnosed with a, a psychiatric diagnosis and put on lots of medication for, for 30, 40 years, you know, what's the effect of that on their right to a full life? Um, there's a lot of, you know, people would... would, would feel now that, well, you know, people aren't in the institutions the way they were 40, 50 years ago. So that's a great advance. In ways it is and in ways it isn't. Because what's happening a lot is that people become institutionalized still within the psychiatric system, but they become institutionalized in their own homes. They're on a lot of medication. Their underlying issues of hurt and fear and terror and trauma and distress have not been dealt with. So 
They're taking medication to sedate those problems, but they're not in a position to progress their life. So there are hundreds of people, I would say probably thousands of people in this country, who are living limited lives um, because they're told that that's the best they can have. And I, it's not the best they can, they can have. They're, we need to make recovery, in terms of human rights, we need to make recovery center stage here. And that was one of the main recommendations of A Vision for Change, of which I was a member of the group of, that created that. I was a member of that. And I, I personally pushed hard for that recommendation. You know, we should be aiming for the best possible outcomes. And we're not. Not generally, anyway. I, I would personally know... 12 to 14 people I have worked with and people I have met over the past five, six years who've made full recoveries, for example, from bipolar disorder. And they they did have the characteristics that involved the diagnosis of bipolar. Now, if that 14 or 15 people can recover, uh, either working with me or finding other ways to recover, then surely that should be a red light to the system to say that recovery is actually possible. But generally speaking, when you hear GPs and psychiatrists speaking about bipolar disorder, for example, they would say recovery is not possible. They will say maintenance is the best we can do. That is clearly not true. Um, now, the journey towards recovery is, is a challenging journey. That's true. But if it's possible, then it should be what we should be aiming for. And it, it isn't. And I think that's a human rights issue in, the, in terms of, you know, making the best possible outcome at least in the frame for people. But there are a lot of human rights issues involved. I mean, um, but to me, that's a very big one. And do you think, Terry, that the doctors are betraying their patients or do they know any better? I think the vast, I've no doubt that the vast majority of doctors mean very well and they are doing what they believe to be right. I, I, I believe that. However, I think that doctors are human too. And I think doctors find themselves in a system, a very narrow focused system. It's the, it's the only training they have had and they don't really know any other way. So they stick to it. They hold on to it. They cling to it. Um, and I think that, you know, are they betraying their patients? No. Are they intentionally? No, I don't believe so. I think, that, you know, I would say that the majority, it, it, you see, it, we need to realize that what psychiatry and general practice is in terms of mental health, it's fundamentally a belief system. It's an ideology. It's a belief system. It's a way of seeing and understanding emotional mental health. But their own, their own identity is tied in with it enormously. Like objectivity, you know, which is very, very important. I have seen over the years, and I am personally in no doubt now, that is very, very difficult for for many psychiatrists and general practitioners to be truly objective about this, such matters, because they're so tied in with their beliefs that to let them go, you know, they would be left with questions like, well, who are we and what are we doing? And if, if for example, um, a shift away from antidepressant prescribing occurred, well, where would that leave GPs and what, what would they know how to do? Like we've... A, crazy situation in Britain now, and I mean, it's mirrored here too, where the prescription rates for antidepressants now is, is close to 60 million a year. That amounts to one prescription per person, per man, woman and child in Britain a year. That is ludicrous. And I believe it has happened because GPs and doctors are wrongly seen as the experts in mental health and having, having 
you know, the best possible expertise. And then doctors end up doing what they can do and all they can do, really, which is prescribe. Um, and because the medical model is supreme in this, there isn't the, I mean, there's a lot of talk about providing counselors, etc. But as long as the medical model is seen and, and chemical imbalances in the brain are seen as the core problem, then other responses are seen as secondary to, to the to the um, to the medical uh, approach to it. So I'm not suggesting that doctors are deliberately betraying them, their patients at all. They really uh, doctors care, but they are misguided. They are seriously misguided, and I think some doctors realise that. But because they feel trapped in a system that you know, the medicine's a real brotherhood. I mean, if you step outside the system of medicine, like I have, you risk ostracization, you risk major criticism, um, and you risk just being, you know, thrown out of the brotherhood. And a lot of doctors are terrified of that and terrified of losing their status and losing their income. And but, you know, so I don't set out to persuade doctors. I, I've realized a long time ago that that's pretty pointless. What I'm trying to do is inform the public so that the public, you know, information is power. And if people are informed, they can ask better questions and they can they can challenge challenge in quite the right word, but they can ask doctors to justify what they're doing more. And I think that to me, the public is a sleeping giant in all of this. And I think the if the public become more properly informed about this, then that may help to turn the tide. Do you think doctors have a duty of care to their patients when they prescribe medication dentary? Oh I, I do and I think I think Many doctors, you know, are well aware of that. Um, but see, that's a there's a bigger question in there. Um, doctors, doctors, um, they carry out their duty of care in terms of antidepressants based on how they see and their understanding of antidepressants and how they understand depression, right? And to a large degree, they do okay on that. But there are areas that doctors have been reluctant to see over the years. And it could be argued that they have not carried out their duty of care in such areas. For example, the withdrawal effects. Um, doc the medical profession have been very slow to take on board the reality that some people, quite a percentage of people, have very significant problems coming off antidepressants. And it's, you know, the SSRI antidepressants are around now for since the late 1980s. I think that's about 30 years or so. And it's only really in recent years that the medical profession has accepted that these drugs cause withdrawal effects. They've been talking about discontinuation effects, which is really playing with words. So in terms of advising people of the difficulty of coming off them, I, it could be argued that doctors could have done more, certainly. Uh, and certainly in terms of how they work, I think that doctors could and should be more real about the, tr the truth of these things. And also, as I said, but this is a societal thing, and I'm not going to blame doctors for this. If we're missing the core issue, and if the core issue, as I said, is trauma, woundedness, the distress that that causes, um, defense mechanism, if that's missed, then, um, you know, something, something important and serious is being missed in most consultations, I would say, in many consultations anyway. But as I said, I don't think that's just down to doctors. I think that we have a societal block about hurt and trauma. So these issues 
need to be addressed on a societal level. It's not just about asking doctors to reevaluate this, because as I said, I think the medical profession is so invested in the current model that there will be a reluctance to address the issue properly. And some of that reluctance for, from their perspective is very genuine. Um, you know, it's very hard to see something that you have decided as a, as a profession is not important or not particularly important for 20, 30 years. It's very difficult to then say, oh, yeah, well, maybe it's an awful lot more important than we thought. And I think it's society has to look at this. And society needs to put in place, I think, for example, independent reviews of what mental health really is. And in that review, those reviews, I believe psychiatry should have an input. But what has tended to happen is that over the years is that psychiatry has had a controlling input into most reassessments that have happened. And I don't think that should happen ever again. I think that there are plenty of wise, intelligent people out there who can who can work these things through in a more objective way. It can be easy for people to slip into the psychiatric system and damn hard to get out of it. And this is quite frightening, as you probably know. But how does this happen? Well, you're absolutely right. It's something I've said many times, you know, that uh, it can be a lot easier to get, get out of the psychiatric system than get into it. There are lots of different reasons why it happens. Um, Part of it is that psychiatry and the mental health system is seen by society as, as the place for these people to go. And that's part of the stigmatization and the rejection of people who are experiencing an awful lot of pain. But part of it, too, is the system itself. As I said earlier, the mental health system is far more comfortable with the idea of maintenance than it is with recovery. So to the, to the mental health system, to most doctors who work within it, to the nurses, I've heard this back many, many times, to the people within the system, to them, they see the patients they treat as being like people with diabetes, with lifelong conditions, needing lifelong treatment. So to them, it's completely normal that they would stay within the system for life. Um, so I think, you know, there are some of the reasons, really. So when someone wants more, wants once more on recovery, once, once to work on coming off medication, trying to get their life back on track more. The system isn't geared for that, really. And that's kind of those kind of intentions are often seen by the system as not cooperating or being a difficult patient. And the system often reacts against people like that. I've seen that on numerous occasions. So I, th I think the fundamental reason is that the mental health system wrongly um, puts most of its emphasis on maintenance, lifelong maintenance. So there isn't an emphasis within the system on getting people out of it. There should be, but there isn't. And you couple that then with the fact that society in general wants these people to go off into some system and be, you know, be fine when they come out of it, etc., and not cause any problems and not, not express any distress anywhere puts people in a very difficult position. I, I, part of the issue here is we need as a society to become far more okay with people expressing emotions. I've, I've encountered so many situations where people have, say, felt very emotional, very overwhelmed, and they've had, for example, to leave work for the day because it wasn't okay for them to be in tears at work. Everybody would panic and think, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And that's an example of the societal uncomfortableness with distress. If a person in that situation could just 
be upset for 10 or 15 minutes, be, be just comforted gently and everybody get back to their work. You know, I think we would avoid a lot of the problems that are created when people feel that they cannot be themselves in, in, in society. You say in your book, Terry, that medication changes how people feel and interferes with a person's ability to find their own solutions. Like, why is this? Yeah, um, well, it changes how people feel in the sense that, as I said, it, 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 that's the commonest effect of it. And, and with antidepressants, probably the commonest effect is numbness. And as I said, that can be welcome. But what it ends up doing, and this, this is another thing that's grossly underestimated within the mental health system, is that the person then becomes whatever about physically dependent, and there is a degree of that, definitely, but they become psychologically dependent on the tablet. And they see the tablet, they see their, their sense of relief or numbness of the pain as being solely down to the tablet and not to them. So it's disempowering by nature. And doctors miss that point left, right and centre. And what we should be doing within the mental health services is we should be helping people find their own solutions. We should be helping people become empowered. And, you know, what, what, what most doctors don't seem to get is that if the response is medication and not a whole lot else, yes, the person may feel better, that's true. But the person is now increasingly dependent on the tablet to make them feel better, and that is fundamentally disempowering. So... And the more a person, the longer a person is on medication, quite often, the the harder the the more the more challenging the idea of finding one's own solutions becomes. What are your suggestions, say, if somebody wants to get off medication? Are there supports out there, Terry? Uh, not nearly as much as there should be. Not nearly as much as they should be. I mean, this issue goes back 50, 60 years. Um, many, many of the drugs that have become really popular within within psychiatry and mental health have been found to be addictive or causing major withdrawal problems. It goes back to, you know, barbiturates were, whatever, 40, 50, 50, 60 years ago, barbiturates were seen as the solution. 30 years ago, benzodiazepines were seen as the solutions, and they were used in a very, very widespread way, not unlike antidepressants now. And it became obvious at a very early stage with benzodiazepines that they were that people were getting hooked on them and then medical profession denied this vehemently for 15 20 years until it reached such a scale that it could no longer be denied but if you take benzodiazepines it's well recognized now including within the medical profession that these drugs are drugs of addiction and yet in ireland the support systems for benzodiazepine withdrawal are very very few and far between i've worked with some people who to come off them and they have felt so alone that the system itself, I've worked with people who have been offered no help from the psychiatric system that they were attending for years, no help to come off benzodiazepines, no systematic approach. And I think it's because it's like the dirty laundry. It's like this problem has been created by the medical profession. So the medical profession is uncomfortable about it and doesn't really want to address it properly. There should be clinics. There are some clinics in Britain, for example, for benzodiazepine withdrawal. Not that many, but there are some. There should be clinics here in this country um, that people can attend to systematically come off benzodiazepines. And that's a legacy issue from 30, 40 years ago. And that should also include SSRI antidepressants. But I think the system is very likely to resist that. 
and resist it because that would be admitting that these drugs cause dependence. And if they were to admit, particularly to admit the degree to which these cause these the SSRIs cause dependence, then serious questions would be asked of them, such as why have you been promoting for 30 years with such enthusiasm drugs that you're now acknowledging cause dependence? So I think the system itself is one of the main reasons why there are not enough supports. It's it's really wrong um, that people have so little support in terms of coming off their uh, medication. Um, most most people who try get support from peers, other people who have, uh, but it's informal. You know, uh, perhaps they there are there are there are many internet support groups that are excellent, but they're limited in their ability to support because they're they're um, virtual. You know, they're not. And but having said that, they can be very helpful. But I think you know it's it's part of the societal denial that exists around emotional mental health that there aren't enough supports out there at all, you know, and, you know, somebody who goes to a GP and says, look, I, I want to work to come off my antidepressant. That's often interpreted by the doctor as, oh, this person is, um, is not, is not complying with, with my instructions. So some doctors respond, not exactly in a hostile way, although some do, but certainly without enormous support of them. Now I've met some people who've had great support from their GPs. But GPs in that situation are going out on a limb themselves because there isn't recognition within the mental within the medical profession that this is the issue that it is. How important do you think proper nutrition and lifestyle is for a person mm. with mental health issues? I think they're very important. I think proper nutrition is very important. Lifestyle is very important. Um, and that's one of the things I, I work with with people. I think that I think, though, that, you know, exercise, for example, is important, no doubt about it. Some people find it really helpful. I think that there are several prongs to this. I think that living well, living healthily, living in a balanced way, absolutely, that's very important. And that's talked about quite a lot. I think what we don't realize enough, maybe, is that when somebody's quite traumatized and still caught in their trauma and experiencing a lot of distress, that living a balanced lifestyle is very challenging for them and very difficult for them. And they need a lot of help and support and, and encouragement to do so. I don't think it's enough to say, you know, one should live a balanced lifestyle. Because, and that's often said because many people just are, are too, they're too wounded too too hurt to create that for themselves. And they, what they actually need is support and encouragement to do to make that happen one step at a time. Do you think, say, the current medical model is looking at nutrition a more deeper level, or, or does this do that? I I don't see it really. I don't see it within the medical model much. Um, people talk about doctors talk about a balanced diet and how important that is, and I but I I think that it's not probably not emphasised as much as it as it should be. I think it's it's a good example though that you know that it's there's not. There's not one approach that will work for everybody. Some people will some people will say that changing their nutrition and really eating very very well has hugely helped them. Others would say it's made absolutely no difference whatsoever. So it's it's one prong I think of what people can and might do when when they're you know experiencing emotional mental health problems. But I think perhaps more fundamentally is 
people need they need places and they need people that they can be real with and be themselves with and talk about what's going on for them and express their sorrow and express their hurt and be heard properly. I mean, I think one of the great, one of the things I love about the Samaritans is that they have, they have become expert listeners and we don't have enough expert listeners in our world. We have a lot of people giving advice and we have a lot of people telling people what's good for them. Whereas actually what people need is encouragement to be who they are and be and express what they're experiencing. And I, you know, I think that we need a lot more of that in society. What are your thoughts, say, in regards to ways of preventing people from having relapses and re-entering into hospital? Well, again, I'd come back to what I was saying at the beginning. I think we need a fundamental review of this thing we call depression. I think that um, if we had a system or a society that saw what we call depression from the perspective I'm suggesting, which is a trauma and woundedness-based um, perspective rather than a brain illness-based perspective, then I think it would follow from that that we would, we would place the supports that people need, the responses that people need at, at, at the different stages, at prevention stages, at schools, People would be far more informed about, like I had somebody into me recently who was telling me about this person was in their mid-20s and they were telling me and, and, and has had a depressive kind of diagnosis for, for 10 years. And they were telling me about something that happened when they were about 10. And it was just a group of eight, being with eight, eight other kids, basically. And the girls were saying which of the, which of the boys they liked. And this chap came forth. He came last in the group. And that hurt him profoundly. Now, that type of hurt and woundedness is very, very common. And it, it's like a knife. It's like a spear. And what ends up being called depression is the accumulation of wounding and how the person chooses to, to deal with that. Like this person, it was one of several types of wounds they had experienced. But the only response that that person felt they could do was to withdraw, to shut down to disconnect, to become silent. And these are features of what we call depression. And I think it's essential that we reappraise and reevaluate this thing we call depression and see it for what it really is. And then we will move on to put in place responses at the different levels, responses at the different tiers, including relapse. And, and when people uh, are discharged from hospital. But I think at the moment, because we're not we're not addressing the core issues, then relapse is naturally going to be um, common uh, because the person may not have learned, may not have dealt with, may not, their sense of self may not have been worked with properly. Um, so if the underlying issues haven't been fully dealt with, then, um, you know, it's not surprising they would relapse. Now, there is more talk within the mental health system in recent years of things like mindfulness. And that's very helpful. Mindfulness is very, very important. But as long as it's done within a fundamentally biologically based and, and distortedly based, as I've said with the chemical balances, for example, a biologically based model, then might the, the potential of things like mindfulness um, are diminished. And what are your thoughts, say, on supportive interventions being in place when a person does come out of a hospital, Terry? The time when a person comes out of hospital is vital. Um, the person has been in hospital, and I think these 
these realities are again underrecognized enormously. Um, say a person has been in a psychiatric hospital for six, eight weeks. They come out, they're back into their society. They've got to reintegrate again. They now have the stigma of a psychiatric admission. They may feel people will treat them differently, look at them differently. Um, the suicide rate after hospital admission and the three to four weeks after hospital admission is quite high because people feel lost, people feel overwhelmed, they're out of the cocoon of the hospital and they're kind of nakedly put back into life again and how do they cope with that and how do they meet people on the street. There is such a need for major support following admission and in a lot of cases I don't think it's there, not to the degree it's needed anyway. I mean, it's those personal reconnections after hospital admission that are most difficult for a lot of people and you know, often I think too, many people I've worked with have, have felt that the hospital admission didn't actually deal with their fundamental issue anyway. Uh, so when they go back out into the world, they're faced with w the same similar enough situation to when they left their world to go into hospital. But now they have the additional stigma of an admission and people's con like because of the stigma of a hospital admission, you know, people they meet may may genuinely feel uncomfortable and not know what to say to them. So their their relationships with people will, will often have changed. And and even if their relationships haven't changed, their perception is often that their their relationships with people have changed greatly. And and I've I've seen many examples where that has been really difficult for people to handle. And I don't see people being prepared for that uh on discharge. I hardly see it at all. I would, I would risk saying that I never, I've rarely heard somebody being prepared for what they will face when they when they are discharged. I know you have a strong focus on mental recovery, Terry, yourself. What are the main issues you meet as you campaign to raise awareness of mental well-being and how do you overcome them? Well, I think the main, the main resistance is society's current perception, really. Um... Society's current perception is that depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, that these are brain illnesses um, and that they're brain illnesses just like epilepsy, multiple sclerosis. And so I'm presenting them. Now, I'm not alone, by the way. There are there have been a small number of other people in Ireland saying there's very few doctors. Michael Carley was one a number of years ago. Ivor Brown would be another. There are some in Britain. There are some in America. So I'm not alone in this, but I we're in a very small minority. So I'm saying to people... Actually, that's not correct. So I'm presenting people with, with an idea, with a, with a reality that they're completely unfamiliar with. And we've seen down through the years uh, how, how hard it is for people to grasp or even accept the possibility that a new idea might be right. Um, I talk in my book, In Depression Delusion, I talk about appalling vistas. And I mention Lord Den Denning's famous quotation many years ago about the Birmingham Six that, you know, the thought the thought that the police could be wrong was such an appalling thought that that we leave them locked up for another five or ten years rather than address this possible reality. And in a way that applies to now too. Society has got comfortable with the idea that depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, etc., that they're brain disorders, fundamentally brain disorders. Um and to hear that maybe they're not kind of opens up a can of worms for people and they have to reassess and rethink and you know people are reluctant to do so so i think that is one of the main the main things I, but there's an awful lot of misinformation out there and i think you know for example people people 
I think most people would assume that psychiatrists are brain doctors. They're not. And that will come as news to a lot of people. But they're not brain doctors. Who are the brain doctors in our societies? Brain doctors are neurologists and neurosurgeons. They're the doctors who examine and test and treat brain disorders. That will come as news to people. So there's a lot of misinformation that needs to be corrected out here. And I think, you know, the, 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 the pervading system has been very good at making sure the public doesn't hear these, these things. Uh, then, of course, there's resistance from the profession itself that doesn't want to see change, particularly. And you've got the powerful drug companies who want the current system to prevail. But none of this could pertain unless the public had a some bit of a vested interest in it as well. And that comes back to what I said earlier, that as a society, we are reluctant to look at issues like trauma, woundedness, hurt, pain, distress, sorrow, grief. I mean, we have great difficulty even handling grief, even when grief, you know, is very obviously legitimate, like um, somebody loses somebody that they love profoundly. You know, as the weeks pass, people often think, God, he should be getting it over it now, you know. So I think that is one of the biggest uh, resistance, the biggest problems is the societal um, denial of human, the human experiences of hurt and pain and loss and grief and their expression. You know, we need to, as a society, we really need to wake up to this and to allow people. And, and in doing so, by the way, we will help heal our societies because there are an awful lot of prices being paid by society at the moment by this suppression and denial of human pain and distress. What do you think of mindfulness applications for depression, such as meditation and yoga? Yeah, I I think a lot of them. I think that they're very good. I think that um, one of the problems that a lot of people with depression find themselves having is that they get caught up in um, they get caught up in in uh, the future and the past, for example, and they tend to ruminate about the past and they tend to to dread the future. And uh, a lot of their time is spent not in the present, but you know, thinking about the past or the future. So. One of the core themes of mindfulness is helping people live more in the present. Um, so I've, I think mindfulness is very, very helpful. And it's very, very. So it's one very important thread. I think, you know, on its own, it may not be enough for some people because there's often pain and distress to be hurt or to be healed. But it's very, very important. Absolutely. Um, now, to me, mindfulness is principally a way of a way of life. And I think the meditations can help people cultivate that way of life. I think the meditations on their own may not be enough because one needs to get into, as I said, the philosophy of life. And But it, it can help retrain a person or help a person retrain themselves and become more aware of when they're drifting off into the past and drifting off into the future and bringing their focus and their attention into back to right now. So, and yoga too. Yes, it can be very helpful. And, you know, there's, there's, Quite a lot of evidence to suggest that bodily focused therapies, uh, act activities and therapies that involve the body um, can be quite helpful you know, for emotional mental health problems. And yoga obviously involves the body. Um, so, yeah, I think and I think it's for what I would suggest to people is that they try a number of things and see what works for them. What works for one person may not work for another. There's a lot of op a lot of options out there. You say, Terry, there is a better way. Can you tell me about this? Well, the better way starts with what I've been saying, which is understand the, understand what the issue is to begin with. And so the better way begins, in my opinion, begins with uh, you see depression fundamentally as 
that combination of trauma-woundedness, um, the distress that, that causes, the defense mechanisms we put in place to try to protect ourselves from further hurt and from, from further experiencing the distress we've already experienced. And that choice-making comes into it as well. I mean, our choice-making is compromised when we have been very hurt. We, we feel that the choices available to us are minimized. But nevertheless, we, you know, we, need to, we do need to recognize the reality that choice is, is part of this. So that's the beginning of the better way. Then the next step is you work with what's there rather than what is, is theorized to be there. There are no chemical imbalances there. So working with chemical imbalances is completely theoretical and completely abstract. Whereas if trauma and woundedness is there, if distress is there and defense mechanisms are there, then you work with those. And that involves often the person telling their story. Often people don't feel they've had a chance to fully tell their story. Um, work through the hurt, the grief, the pain. Also, you know, raising one's sense of self. And I wrote my book Selfhood for that reason. Um, finding other solutions. You know, disempowerment is a, is, a, is a cornerstone of depression. You know, I've yet to meet a person, a de depressed person who didn't feel disempowered. So finding actions they can take and it's often small actions to begin with but it's breaking that cycle of thinking breaking that cycle of there's nothing i can do and often you start with really small things there that give the person the felt feeling inside them that actually there is something i can do and working with that but it's you know it's about healing healing hurt working through grief acknowledging that my feelings are make sense um acknowledging that i am employing defense mechanisms that I need to work on bit by bit, step by step. So I would see it as generally for people as a kind of a medium term project to be worked on. It was said to me recently that unconditional love for ourselves and others, mindfulness and heart centered consciousness are what's needed to eliminate depression. Yeah, what that, do you think of this theory? That's very good. That's very good. Unconditional love. Yes. I might add to that unconditional acceptance. I think, um, I think acceptance may be built into the word love. Um, that's a very important starting point. I mean, a lot of people with, with depression are so critical of themselves and so judgmental of themselves. And I explain that in selfhood, why that is. It's, it's like I'm rejecting my feelings, so I'm trying to push them away and I'm criticizing myself to distance my feelings from myself. But absolutely, unconditional love and acceptance of self and others. Yes, that's right. Um, what were the other ones? Mindfulness and heart-centered consciousness. Yeah. Mindfulness is very, very important, yes. And, and as I said, it's, mindfulness is a way of life, cultivating living more fully in the now, definitely. Heart-centered consciousness, not exactly, should, people might have different meanings uh, with, with that phrase. Well, heart-centered, you know, to me, suggests, I like the word centered. I, I talk in my book, Selford, about being self-centered. And what I mean by that is being centered in ourselves, being that, you know, whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, the fact is our lives do revolve around us. Every interaction I have, I'm there. So I am at the center of my world, whether, and, and that's not an egotistical statement, it's just a fact. And I imagine what the word heart-centered is that my heart is open and my heart is alive and, and my feeling side is, is, is working well. I think, and I think that's very va valid. I think heart and mind work together, really. Um, there's a play, our emotions are very, very important and so are our, our thoughts. They're both very, very important. I think, um, you know, Choice making, though, I think is important how we choose to live, the decisions and choices we make, very, very important. And as I said earlier, 
I think, increased awareness of our defense mechanisms. You know, many of the features, many of the DSM features of, of depression um, are actually defense mechanisms. And, and when you realize that, you, you, you approach them differently, like, with, as I said, withdrawal, shutdown, um, disconnecting. They're all defense mechanisms and, I, and, and they're trauma based. They're, they're a reaction to hurt and trauma. And when we see them as, as that, then we approach them differently rather than just seeing them as part of an illness to be treated like diabetes. If anyone wants to find out more about your work or even buy your new book out, like how can they do it? Sure. Uh, well, the book, Depression, Delusion, uh, Volume 1, The Myth of the Brain Chemical Imbalance, that's now widely available. It, it should be, it, if it's not in bookshops, it's in Ireland, it's orderable through bookshops. It's on all of the internet stores, Amazon, etc. It's available in through bookshops in America, Britain. So it's now easily available. My my website is www.drterrylynch.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R, drterrylynch.com. So there are probably um, two ways to, to follow this through. I will be... I will be writing at least another 10 to 12 books over the next 10 years. Um, I picked this one first. Well, it's my third book, but I picked this one to write now because I want to present the public with a richer understanding of depression, of bipolar, of schizophrenia, etc. And that richer understanding will involve some of what I talked about today, the trauma, the woundedness, distress in its many forms, etc. But in in order for that to seem credible, I have to first address the current dominant model, and I have to present why we need to um, rethink this whole thing. And as I said, the whole thrust of this book is to inform the public that there are no brain chemical imbalances at all. There never were. And that's misinformation of the highest order. And once we kind of discard that idea, then we can look openly at what depression really might be. That's great, Terry. Look, thanks so much for for chatting today, Terry. I really enjoyed it. Great, Mihal. I enjoyed it too, very much. Thanks very much.